Hello, and welcome to Leadership Listens, curated podcasts for leaders in health and care. My name is Paul O'Neill, Head of Strategy, Research and Development at the NHS Leadership Academy, part of the People Directorate of NHS England and Improvement. This mini-series of podcasts, as part of Leadership Listens, is a series all about compassionate leadership. And it's a collection of conversations between Professor Michael West and a leader from the health and care sector. This recording is a conversation between Michael and Dr. Alison Sykes, consultant in emergency medicine at Lancashire Teaching Hospitals. And the conversation focuses on the importance of compassion in medicine and the importance of self-compassion. Welcome, everybody. My name is Michael West, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Alison Sykes. Alison is consultant in emergency medicine at Lancashire Teaching Hospitals and the Foundation Programme Director at Lancashire Teaching Hospitals for the Northwest of England School of Foundation Training and Physician Associates. Welcome, Alison. Thank you, Michael. We're going to be talking today about compassion and kindness in healthcare and the centrality of self-compassion and self-compassion in leadership. And so to begin, Alison, let me just say a little bit more about you. You started working, I know, as a consultant in emergency medicine in 2010. And your role as a foundation program director at Lancashire Teaching Hospitals is very much focused on how to bring about change and improvement in placements for doctors in training and also helping other doctors find a way to make it all work in these really challenging circumstances we face. And I think what's particularly relevant to people is also that you've pioneered the development and implementation of a compassionate leadership program for trainees. And I know that you're extending that to others. So I want to ask you, obviously, some questions about that pioneering work. But really, the first question is, it's a kind of an obvious question. But I think it's important to explore it. Why is compassion important in healthcare and in medicine? It's tremendously important for us as doctors because I think it is the essence of what we set out to be. It is why we went to medical school all those years ago for some of us, was to look after people, to care for people and to help others. And that is what we are. We are compassionate beings and we know If we just look at the research, we know that children show compassionate behaviours at the age of 14 months. It's what makes us human, that desire to, to want to care for one another. And so when people set out on their journey in medicine, that is fundamentally why they went to medical school. It's very important right now because I think at the stage that we're at, we've lost sight of that. We have in some way become unconnected with what is a core value to be human. And there's many reasons for that in terms of the pressures of work, the current situation we find ourselves in, the lack of staff. But it's about reconnecting with that core value of being compassionate. And we know it has hugely beneficial effects for patients, for staff and for us as individuals when we do reconnect with our core, which is compassion, which is to help and to serve others. So you were saying that when people go through medical training, the evidence suggests that compassion in many cases declines. 
is that because in a way we're so concerned with developing technical skills and memorizing all of the information we need and going through processes that we we become focused on doing rather than being in the relationship is it something around those sorts of difficulties that overlay our way of being i think that's part of it michael i think we go through medical training and you come out the other side as a doctor and the next thing that you're looking to is which specialty am I going to go in? Which set of exams am I going to do? What are the skills and knowledge I need to achieve those things? And so you have this sense of forever being on the hamster wheel. There's always another hurdle. After the first round of exams, there's inevitably more. Um, and then there's jobs to think of. Where do I need to locate myself to get the best CV for what will hopefully lead me to the right post for me as an individual? And in amongst that, you do lose part of that connection of why we are truly there. But I also think there's more to it than that. I don't just think it's about pursuing knowledge and skills. I think it's also the sense of time, of what time we have available when we're working. And as you've mentioned, I work in emergency medicine. So for me, if I see one patient, there are still probably another 10 waiting to be seen at least. Um, and not just for me, uh, that's the same for all of us. There is a huge time pressure to see a large number of patients in the shortest time possible. And you can end up just rolling from one to the other without pausing, without stopping to draw breath, and even just reflect on what you've just seen and done. So you become hardened to it, I think. I think that's definitely what happens. And I, I, was, I was aware I was losing touch with my humanity. I felt like I was, I was just leaking my humanity out because I was always running from one thing to another. And obviously people watch television programs about doctors um, and casualty and things like that. But the reality is that, that you do have shifts where there's one patient after another that's coming through the resuscitation room. There are sickest patients. They deserve and need our attention immediately. And you just have to go. You have to do it. And that's right and proper that we do. So when we don't have enough staff, there is no opportunity to pause, to breathe and to go, that was tough. Um and so I think you become a little bit hardened. I don't just think it's about the, the focus on skills and knowledge, although that is definitely some of it. We don't draw attention to this as an area in the same way that we would talk about managing heart disease. And yet we know this is just as important. So I think these are hugely important observations. I've been really impressed, amazed actually, by a review of the research on compassion in healthcare published by Treziak and Mazzarelli in their book Compassionomics a few years ago, which basically showed us, I think, that from the hundreds of randomized controlled trials and meta-analysis that compassion across the board is the most important intervention in healthcare, probably. And, you know, some of the studies showing visits by anaesthetists to patients prior to surgery, where anaesthetists are extra compassionate, much lower requirement for painkillers post-surgically and much shorter length of hospital stay. The randomized control trials of patients with an early diagnosis of lung cancer who are given early palliative care, if you like extra compassionate care, living significantly longer, 30% longer. 
and studies of the treatment of long-term conditions like diabetes and HIV, where clinicians are compassionate, much better outcomes, much better adherence to treatment protocols. And in the treatment, of course, of mental health problems, therapist compassion being associated with much better outcomes. And also, I suppose that, well, a couple of things. One is the research showing that being compassionate has an impact on clinicians' own well-being, lower levels of anxiety, stress, and depression. Um, but also that compassion doesn't need to take any longer. That in some of these interventions, the protocols used scripts that involve compassionate statements that only took about 20 seconds. But the other point that you make that seems to me hugely important is the issue of staffing and workload. And I mean, that's just a huge point in the current work context. And actually, it has been for years from before the pandemic, with hundreds of thousands of vacancies across both health and social care, and very large numbers of staff intending to quit, and the problems of chronic work overload, leading people to be absent, to, to be sick at work. And as you say, that that is having a, an enormous impact on clinician well-being. And that's partly why we're losing so many clinicians. So you've also seen the impact of the pandemic. And can you say a little bit about what that's been like in terms of the experience of you and your colleagues working in emergency medicine? I think it varied between the waves. I think it's quite important to make that distinction um, because the first wave, there was a lot of fear there was a lot of uncertainty and unknown for all of us. Um, and there was also a very different message being sent to us um, about what we were going in to do. There was a lot of reference to almost military terms about going into battle to, a, you know, to an enemy you can't see or hear or touch. And the first wave, we, in our emergency department at Lancashire Teaching Hospitals, we actually retained our staff. So none of our staff moved on. So we kept everybody that we started with at the beginning of December, stayed with us for about eight months. And that was hugely beneficial and protective because we all knew one another. And there was that herd sense. We, you know, we looked after one another and we looked out for one another. And certainly for us in the Northwest, the first wave was not as severe as it was in London. And we had time to sit with one another to debrief at the end of shifts so at the end of every shift we would make sure that the outgoing team were able to talk about their experiences and to share that load so the first wave was quite different to the next wave that we then got so we got our second wave in June in the northwest and that was different and then the third wave which was the national second wave Again, there was then the pressure that we had to catch up. We had to hurry up. There was work that hadn't been done. There were long waiting lists. We were asked to commit to high levels of, of workload as an organisation, 120%. And that felt really different because suddenly you weren't just coping with the devastation that COVID was causing to individuals, to families, to communities. You were also trying to cope with additional workload on top of that and catch up. And I think that was a far more damaging situation to be in for individuals, for people's health and their well-being. And also we were back on track. We were trying to do all the things that were normal. So our trainees were moving on, they were rotating back, which was right and proper for them. It's right and proper their training was developed. And I, and I want to make sure that I stress that point. 
But that meant that they were back to moving between different departments, so that lengthy attachment was lost. We still instituted the same things, but when you lose team members and get new team members in, then obviously it changes the dynamics. Um, And when you're with somebody for a longer time, you have a deeper connection with each other. So I think we've seen more damaging effects from those second and third waves than we did from the first wave. I think the first wave was hard for us in terms of adjusting to the environment that everybody found themselves in. You know, it wasn't just healthcare workers that were struggling. It was everybody was struggling. As a friend of mine says, that the quiet pandemic is the mental health pandemic that's going on as a result of the COVID pandemic. So that was hard for everybody. The second and third wave were hugely damaging, I think, for individuals, for staff, because they'd got through the first wave. And if you'd had troops in some country or other fighting, then you would have rested them. And there was no rest for NHS staff. There was no pause. There was no break. And in fact, it was worse than that. It was, right, come on, get on. We've got work to catch up on. We've got to deliver 120%. And you could almost see it in people. There was a, really? You want more? And so that was more damaging. And and it's sad, really, because it's sad for those individuals that suffered. And it's sad for the NHS, but it's sad for communities because the result of that is that we lost the highest number of staff in December 2021 than at any other time. So more staff have chosen to Mm. leave the NHS now. And I do feel that if we'd done things differently, that wouldn't have happened, but it has. We've lost people and that, that speaks volumes about where staff are at in terms of their health and well-being levels of burnout and what they actually think they can now do, what they feel they've got to give left inside. And so what could have been done differently, Alison? For me, it would be about recognising where individuals were and and acknowledging that. And I don't think that there there was never going to be a cavalry coming over the hill for the NHS. We all knew that, but we did need something else. We did need hope. We needed some way to to find a way through, to not be asked to give more, but to be asked to give what we could, perhaps, and then to support staff and look after staff. And that support and looking after staff needed to be timely. People shouldn't have waited the length of time people have waited to get help when they've needed help for PTSD, depression, anxiety. It needed to be faster than that. It almost needed to be there at the same time as people were going through this so that they didn't leave a shift having experienced moral injury and then take that home with them to then come back in at eight o'clock the next day and go through it all again. But that didn't happen. People came into work day in, day out. They delivered, they cared, they did what they could and then they were burnt out. And it's no surprise we are where we are. I'm impressed and I think it's really important that in your department you had these end of shift huddles, if you like, where people could talk about what they had experienced and what they were feeling on a daily basis. That feels important. But I think that the deeper point and important point is that I think there is a real danger. There has been a danger traditionally, but I think there is a real danger still, even with the pandemic, that people are often reluctant to talk about workforce shortages and chronic excessive workload partly because they're anxious that they don't have solutions for these things. In the middle of all of this, Alison, you made the decision to introduce a compassionate leadership course for foundation doctors and physician associates. 
how did that come about? Yes. What, was, what, what was the motivation for that? I mean, it's a pioneering course in the country. Thank you. It's amazing. Well, thank you for that too. That's that's lovely. Um, so I, it came about because I work very closely with Professor Paul Baker at the Northwest of England School of Foundation. And, and his view, what he said to me was, we are two steps away from compassionate leadership at foundation level. I want you to talk to Professor West about it. And that was how it started. And then we had our conversation. And I think it became apparent that if we accept that foundation doctors are more compassionate than at any other time in their future careers, they are the fertile ground to which we should apply this knowledge, these skills, this information to help them go on and lead the rest of us in being compassionate, um, almost a bottom-up approach. So that, to me, struck a chord that we should really be doing this for our foundation doctors. And then when I looked more into where they're at in terms of their health and well-being, I was quite surprised to hear that they also suffer higher levels of burnout than any other training grade. So it seemed to me a perfect match. We've got high levels of burnout and we know they are probably the most receptive to this type of information. And so then with yourself, with Professor Baker and with the University of Lancaster, we started to develop the Compassionate Leadership course for foundation trainees. And we were able to start delivering that in May 21, which was great. And we developed an eight-week course looking at several aspects of compassionate leadership, but also providing a reflective space where the trainees could talk to one another. They could exchange their experiences, their views, their solutions as well, because as you know, I love my bees. I'm all for a hive mind of sharing information. And they were able to sort of explore the material, to look at compassion as a state of being, as a way of living their lives. And I think when we've looked back at the information that we've received in terms of feedback and the interviews, I've been absolutely amazed by what has come out from that for them as individuals. And uh, for me, I, I think it was the right thing to do, obviously. I still think it's the right thing to be doing because I think they are our future. They're, they're the doctors that's going to be looking after all of us. <laughs> mm. So, uh, you know. What's the structure of the course then that you've developed Alison. So thank you. We start with um, about an afternoon just looking at what compassionate leadership is. And in doing so, we're looking at the principles of compassionate leadership, attending, understanding, empathising and helping. And we use a very reflective space so that they can try those things out, see how they work for them and experiment with them. We then move into self-compassion. And we found that that's particularly difficult and challenging. So we've spent longer on self-compassion than actually we planned to do, but we've seen the benefits from doing so. So it, it was the right course of action. We then move into um, compassionate leadership in teams and across teams, looking at our relationships with one another, not thinking of the I and the you, but actually about the we and how we can move forward together to serve the common purpose, which is to care for those in our community that need our help. And then we look at compassionate leadership in difficult or challenging situations and try to find ways to make that easier to cope with because those situations are not just damaging for 
patients, but they're damaging for us as individuals. So actually, it's hugely important that we find ways people can manage that situation and cope with it better. Ideally, not end up there. But if it happens, then we look at that as well. And then we close by looking to the future, by how we can implement these principles in the way we go about our work. Um, but as, as we've mentioned, it's not just about our work, it's about the way we interact with everybody, with our colleagues, with our friends, with our family. So, so there's a couple of questions, I guess, that arise from what you've said. I mean, it's pioneering. It, you have done something really, at the moment, quite unique in terms of the training of doctors. And yet it seems utterly obvious that we should be developing compassionate leadership for doctors. What were their reactions in the middle of this intense training that they're going through in the middle of a pandemic? What were their reactions? What maybe was difficult for them and what was most important to them in the content of the training? It landed on many different levels for them all in different ways. We obviously held a very reflective space for them, which was very different to how a lot of medical education is delivered at this stage to trainees. So there was a little period of adjustment didn't take long, just a tiny period of adjustment for them to actually engage with that space. Um, and then they flourished in it. And in terms of individual things landing for them, it was humbling to read one of our doctors attributing her staying in medicine as a result of the course. I, I had no idea that, that that was going on for her, that she was considering leaving. Yet the course gave her confidence and it gave her courage and it gave her a different approach to how she would progress further in medicine. And she's still working in medicine. And so we have that extreme. And then I have wonderful stories of trainees talking about working and seeing a patient unable to butter their toast. And him stopping and pausing and seeing this and going over and buttering this lady's toast for her because she couldn't do it herself. That's just a wonderful connection between two people. And acknowledging that we can do those things for one another. And, and that rippled out further, just that little interaction between the foundation trainee and the patient was observed by a nurse. And the nurse said, I've never seen a doctor do that before. You know, and, and that then made him feel emboldened to try other things. So he went off and did different experiments. So when he was quiet, uh, one of our, our sister departments is at Chorley District Hospital. Um, and they only open at eight in the morning. And when there was no patients in at 8am, he helped the nursing staff do the nursing checks. And really was sort of swept along on a tide of team working in a compassionate leadership way that was hugely beneficial, not just to him, but to the team he was with. And of course, that then had an effect on the way their day went, which then impacted on the way the patients received the care. And we know that, don't we, from all the evidence that we read, how just these small things can actually have massive effects and ripple outwards, which is it's a wonderful idea, isn't it? So those are really uplifting examples, Alison. And actually, what might be useful is if you just very briefly say what the content of the course covered and what do you think the most powerful part of the course was for the doctors? So it was really about the how and the what of compassionate leadership. It was what we set out to achieve over an eight-week course. And we met with the trainees for an afternoon every week. That was partly to give them that space for reflection as well, so that when we talked about various aspects of compassionate leadership, they had a week to reflect on it, to think about it, and to experiment as well. We encouraged them to try things out, see how it felt, see what it meant to them and to others. In terms of the actual subject matter that we looked at, so we initially spent 
uh, the first session looking at what is compassionate leadership, what the aspects of it are, why it's important, not just for individuals, but for themselves, not just for patients, but for staff as well. So you covered those four behaviours of attending to the other, understanding their challenges, empathising and then helping. Absolutely. That was how we started. So bringing in what we term the principles of compassionate leadership was the attending, understanding, empathising and helping. And then we moved along into self-compassion, again, using the same principles. And you asked me which was the most difficult, and this was the most difficult for people. It was the most challenging to accept, to think about themselves compassionately. That, that was definitely the hardest part for them. And I'm going to be honest and say for me and for all of us that were leading on the course, we are all still learning. I'm no expert on this material at all and very much a work in progress. So, um, so the self-compassion... Uh, was the most challenging for everybody. Why do you think that was? I think that as doctors, you come in to serve. You come in to focus on other people. You come in to care for other people. So to turn your direction towards yourself seems unnatural. And There's also the hidden curriculum around being heroic and stoic. We see it on television programmes. You hear it if you're on the wards about how, you know, I've just worked the last 48 hours nonstop and I've done this and I've done that. The underpants on the outside is sometimes that kind of behaviour. So there's this whole heroic and stoic hidden curriculum, really, about being a doctor, about how you can cope with all these things and survive them and keep going and see the next 400 patients, whatever. So there is that mentality around medicine too. So a strong sense of altruism, the heroic and stoic behaviours that we have been immersed in, you know, from early days of graduation, if not before graduation, that affects the way people behave. So to turn compassion onto oneself is really going against the tide there. That's difficult stuff. And actually, that was borne out by us recognising we needed to spend longer on that, perhaps, than any of the other material we wanted to cover. And for me, it was fundamental to have a good bedrock in self-compassion because if you don't have that, then trying to empathise without being overwhelmed will be incredibly difficult and perhaps damaging. So for me, you have to be moving in the direction of self-compassion to then be able to be compassionate to others, to then be able to to be that compassionate being that is what you are at your core. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because as a leader, and I'm I'm now thinking about when I'm working clinically, as a leader, if I show myself compassion It's enabling for everybody else to do the same. It sends a very powerful message and that helps other people see this as important for themselves, see it as something that they should be doing. And I guess what feels really powerful in what you're saying is that compassion as a way of being isn't siloed in the sense it's not just about being compassionate to others who I'm providing care for. It's also about compassion being my orientation to the others that I work with and that compassion is also about my relationship with who I am with myself and that in a way to develop our ability to be compassionate it means that all relationships with 
others and with ourselves are characterized by that compassion of paying attention to ourselves, being self-aware in the moment, and seeking to understand how I'm feeling and why, and accepting the feelings rather than rejecting them, and then bringing a nurturing, loving attitude to ourselves. I suppose I think that that notion of having a loving attitude towards myself, a caring, nurturing attitude towards myself, is quite a hard one for people. Because, as you say, it goes against the norm that we would be loving towards ourselves, and yet each of us is as deserving of love as every other human being. And so I think when we are loving towards ourselves, then we're more likely to take the actions that help us to be the best we can be. I think that's true. And I think when we started working with your material, Michael, we realised very early on that that this wasn't just a set of skills and knowledge. This was a way of being and being not just at work, but in every aspect of our lives, that it would ripple through. And the self-compassion, again, absolutely I agree with you. I think turning compassion on to ourselves is... It's incredibly difficult, but it's so important to do because if you're not compassionate with yourself, then what other people see is not authentic. It doesn't make sense. You become a paradox, don't you, in that you are wanting to to be compassionate to everybody else, but you cannot give yourself that compassion. And it's difficult. It's not an easy thing to do. I'm not saying that this is something that, that I've got right. I definitely haven't. There's, there's challenging times still for me to be compassionate for myself. And so how does self-compassion manifest for you? What do you do to be self-compassionate? I think it's important to make the distinction between self-care and and self-compassion. I think there are are things I do to look after myself regularly, which which will involve sort of exercise and diet and and things like that. And and hobbies, hobbies are are important. So as you know, I keep bees. So I, uh, in the summer, will go and spend time out with my bees, looking at them and and I find I can draw a lot from the world around me in terms of the nature that I live amongst. Um, well, we have quite a wild garden, so we have quite unusual visitors. And I also like to be up mountains quite well as often as I can. What you've just said chimes wonderfully with all the research Professor Sabina Sonnentag at the University of Mannheim has done over the last 20 years on recovery from work, showing that people who have stressful work need to be able to recover. And the activities that enable recovery are things like engaging in activities that help you psychologically disengage. So you're not just thinking about work the whole time, you're thinking about other things, the bees or a Netflix series that you're watching, but also that it's quite helpful to do tasks that give you a sense of effectiveness some sense of achievement, doing something a little bit challenging, maybe the bees or cooking a nice meal or whatever. And of course, relaxation, meditation, those sorts of activities. And I was struck by her research showing as well that people need to be able to, outside of work, not just have another huge raft of tasks they've got to do, but they've got some choice about what they do in non-work time. And that Work breaks are important not only for recovery, but also for safe patient care and obviously exercise. Her work shows that spending time in nature is astonishingly powerful for recovery. And there's a kind of hierarchy of natural environments, with blue being at the very top, lakes, 
rivers, sea, closely followed by green environments, mountains, hills, and then a little way down, urban green environments. But even being outside at all can be beneficial. So what you're doing in terms of your taking care of yourself is very much mirrored in her work. And of course, we know that probably the most important factor in terms of human well-being is spending good quality time with the people we love and who love us. And that has a huge effect. And it's also why compassion is so important. You were going to talk about a second area that you focus on in terms of self-compassion. So I, I get a lot of comfort out of those aspects that we've just talked about. Um, but for me, the self-compassion starts by recognising that I, I need to do something. I need to change something or listening to myself to where I'm at. And so for me, there's that first step of recognition, of knowing that my stresses, my anxieties are perhaps just on the boundary of what I can tolerate, cope with, that I need to do something just to move away from that boundary or reinforce it a little bit. And quite often, I think for us in many different aspects of our lives, it's not just applicable to doctors, but obviously that's all I know about. But for us in healthcare, you do feel quite often that you can't change some of the things. So you've mentioned chronic excessive workload and where we are at the moment, there's nothing I as an individual can do to change that. So for me, recognising when that is too much and knowing when I need to step back from it and not spend the time coming home, sorting out the washing and the ironing, but coming home and saying, I've got to go up a mountain today or I've, you know, there's something else for me as an individual that I need, that I need filling up in some way. Um, for me, that's the first step is recognising that and, and accepting where I'm at with it, that there are things I can't change, but I can change the way I feel about them so that I can choose how I cope with it. Rather than just being impelled forward to working harder and harder, not having any respite mm. yeah so I can choose what I do so accepting it and stepping away and and taking that time to look after myself in whichever way that is but not feeling guilty either I don't have to feel guilty about a day out up in the hills so I have agency I think is what I'm saying if Mike Pazette was with me one of my co-facilitators he would say you've got agency you can choose how you do this and that's so important, isn't it, is the sense that we, we have some control over all of this. I find the guidance that Tara Brach gives in her book on self-compassion really powerful. She talks about an acronym of RAIN, and, and I think the first two steps are so powerful. So recognising what I'm feeling, having the courage to be self-aware in the minute and to recognise feelings, feeling overwhelmed, feeling guilty, feeling angry feeling at the end of my tether, feeling joyful, feeling happy. And then she talks about accepting the feelings, just, just accepting it rather than denying them or berating ourselves for having them or pushing them away. And those first two steps that involve the courage to be self-aware, recognizing and accepting how I'm feeling, and then being able to inquire the eye of rain into them so that I understand where's this coming from. Why am I feeling like this at this minute? To see it clearly and unpack it. Oh, I just had that difficult interaction with that person, which has left me feeling actually a bit hurt. 
and then bringing a nurturing, loving, caring attitude to ourselves to say, you know, yes, this hurts, it's hard, and almost as it were, you know, metaphorically or physically even to hug ourselves. And then that makes it much more likely, as you say, that we'll have agency and consciously take a choice to do something that helps us to be happier, the best we can be, enable ourselves, as you say, by going up into the mountains for a day. So, Alison, what's the one, maybe two things that you would recommend for leaders in healthcare, doctors in healthcare? that they could do to embody, if you like, or implement self-compassion that would be most helpful for them? I think that's quite difficult because we're all very different, aren't we? For me, it was about connecting and and recognising my connection with the world around me. And and I, I live that through, through beekeeping. That's my hobby. But it, it's more than a hobby. It is about connecting with the world, and if I can just explain what I mean by that connection, by a lovely piece of, of science that I read last year about how a flower will hear, and put here in inverted commas for me, um, will hear a bee approaching. And when it does that, it releases, it increases its flow of nectar for the bee. What a beautiful picture of, of connection, of compassion, of help that we find in the world around us. So for me, my bees are a hobby, but they're also a connection with something far deeper, far greater than, uh, than just a hive. I was listening also about how daisies turn to the sun as soon as it's there. They open up and turn to the sun and they get really warm temperatures in the middle of the flower so that when the bees come, they get warmed by the flowers as well and makes it makes those daisies particularly attractive. But that lesson of interconnection, I think, of interbeing is in a way the message at the heart of compassion that we are connected with each other and we are connected with the entire planet and universe and that our growth, our happiness, our fulfillment are all greater when we recognize and live that interconnection. I do agree, absolutely. Alison, I've got a question for you. How many hives have you got now? <laughs> I've got nine. <laughs> okay. So my question is, what have you learned from the bees that can help us human beings? Oh, absolutely loads. One day I'll write a book about it. Um, <laughs> compassion and bees. <laughs> so for me, they're a community. They are a perfect community in that everything that they do is for one common good, and that's to see them all through winter. So that is their primary purpose, to care for everyone in the colony. And it is a magical thing to, to look inside a hive and to see them all working together. And when the bee comes in laden with pollen, just as an example, that the hairs on the bee's legs are exactly spaced for dandelion pollen to sit one atom of dandelion pollen directly on. So when they come into the hive, they can't get that off their legs. So the other bees come in and they clear the pollen off and they put it into what we call bee bread, which then feeds the baby bees and life goes on. And they all have a purpose and that is to look after the whole, the whole colony, the community. So for me, that speaks volumes about, about how we could live our lives thinking about one another and caring for one another. There are many other aspects, but I'm always aware I bore people after a while. <laughs> Not at all. 
Alistair, it's been just a, a joy and a delight to spend this time talking with you about the amazing work that you're doing in the most difficult circumstances as well. So a huge thank you from me. Thank you very much for asking me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please look out for others in this mini-series and subscribe to the Leadership Listeners Collection for more content like this.